Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part two of a six-part series of live tapings of the podcast examining the relationship between climate and security. These episodes are produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest global agricultural innovation network, and today's episode focuses on the role of data and technology in helping us better understand the links between climate and security. I moderated the session along with Grazio Pacillo of CGIAR, and we had four panelists from diverse fields grapple with some of the complex questions around how data and technology can be put to better use in the service of peacebuilding, resilience, and other aspects of climate security. I kick off with some brief remarks before introducing the panelists and then diving right into a really interesting conversation. I think you will enjoy it. The next live taping as part of this series will take place on July 2nd. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to register for that event or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. And I look forward to seeing you there. All right, now here it is, part two of the Climate Security Series. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg, and I am the editor of the UN and Global Affairs website, UN Dispatch, and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation about the importance of data and disruptive technologies for climate security is being recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. Now, many of you who registered for this conversation ahead of time were asked to answer the following question. What types of technologies, data sources, and analyses are most promising to monitor the drivers of conflict? And let me read some of your answers. Mixing life sciences and socioeconomic data is essential. Spatial data and mapping combined with long-term ethnographic qualitative research to uncover social, economic, and political inequalities and environmental vulnerabilities. Understanding land use changes and using satellite image processing to eliminate food production, to estimate, pardon me, food production levels. And digital approaches such as social media, mobile phone that collect live gender disaggregated data from key informants that can be used for early warning systems or pollings. Those answers, I think, nicely frame our conversation today, the goals of which are really twofold. 
First, we're going to get a sense of the lay of the land in terms of the kinds of available data and technologies that might be put to use in the service of climate security. And second, we are going to discuss ways in which data and novel technologies can be better leveraged to support resilience, development, and peacebuilding efforts. Now, we are purposefully having this conversation with a diverse group of panelists, including scientists, policy experts, and members of the humanitarian community, because ultimately progress on climate security will require collaboration and partnerships across these fields and more. Uh, so to that end, it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists today. Elizabeth Gilmore is Associate Professor in the Environmental Science and Policy Program in the Department of International Development, Community and Environment at Clark University. She is also a Senior Associate Researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo PRIO and Visiting Scientist at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, ICAMOD. Welcome. Andy Jarvis is Associate Director General, Research Strategy and Innovation with the Alliance of Bioversity International and CIOT. Welcome. Enrica Pokari is Chief Innovation Officer and Director of Technology at the UN World Food Program. And finally, Martin Van Alst is Director of the International Federation of the Red Cross Climate Center. Uh, so thank you all and let's get to it. Uh, so Andy, I wanted to start with you. Uh, you created the Climate Change and Big Data Research Program at CGIAR. So to kick off this conversation, can you give us some examples of the kind of data you are gathering and how you're using that data to support CGIAR's mission? Okay, thanks a lot, Mark. I mean, first of all, this is a dream conversation for me, right? Uh, you know, I, I see uh, in 20 years now working in, in development and research, um, you know, the climate crisis is one of the biggest, the biggest issue we need to be uh, addressing uh, globally. And then the digital and the big data kind of revolution that's going on is one of the most exciting opportunities that we have. And so, you know, this is the kind of match made in heaven for me to be talking about these two issues. Um, first of all, just the CGIR mission. The, the CGIR mission is about science and innovation um, and leveling that to search for a world, achieve a world that is free of poverty, hunger, and environmental degradation. And so um, in, in, in doing that, science is at the center of it. And science without data is just a story, right? Data is absolutely critical for scientific endeavor, right? So um, data underpins everything we do. Um, and so it's, you know, every, every day, every second, we, are, we as scientists should be producing data. Um, but um, uh, what we do with this right now, um, the kind of the key, key role of data, you know, the first thing is organizing it better, what we're trying to do in CGIR. You know, I think the, the, the problem we have right now in across the board in so many institutions, data's everywhere but it's hard to access. And so we need to get, get it, reduce the barriers, get closer to it, organize it much better. We need to get much better. We're working very strongly on improving two-way data capture and delivery of information, right? So we need to be getting information from the field and sending data back to the field, to, to uh, farmers, to uh, rural areas, in urban areas much more effectively. Um, we need to make much better analytics. So we're working very strong on the analytical side of things, machine learning as new methods, but uh, even traditional methods 
being able to on the fly quickly analyze. And then finally, really getting, putting all of this into action some certain problem domains. And so we've been identifying where in development is it rich, is it ripe for disruption where we can use digital and data tools um, really to uh, um, um, make development smarter, faster, more efficient. And we see this area of climate security as one critical one where fast, uh, fast movement of information is power um, for decision-making and vastly improves um, uh, issues around climate security. Uh, thank you. I'm glad we can help make your dreams come true with this conversation today, Andy. Um, uh, Elizabeth, I wanted to turn to you now. Uh, from your perspective as an academic, uh, can you tell us what do we know about the relationship between climate and conflict and what don't we know? And what sorts of data would help us better understand that relationship? Right. So thank you. Um, and I agree with Andy. This is a very exciting conversation uh, to be a part of, um, in part because um, uh, academics, I mean, as academics, we do want to bridge, right? We want to be part um, and have what we know facilitate good policy making. Um, I'm gonna take just one step back though from Mark's question, which is before we ask sort of what do we know about the relationship of climate and conflict, it's really helpful to ask why we expect to see a relationship to begin with. Um, and briefly, this goes back to a, a very sort of older set of literature on the environmental roots of conflict. Sort of these Neo-Malthusian ideas about scarcity, uh, driving conflict and violence. and in general, as you sort of looked through the 1980s and the 1990s on the scholarship, you saw the neo-Malthusian models being largely dismissed by the, by the peace and conflict community. And they refocused on root causes where environmental stressors acted through existing pathways, um, you know, things such as exclusionary institutions or pre-existing ethnic tensions. Some of the first set of scholarship on climate change almost sort of reverted a bit to these neo-Malthusian concepts, um, but increasingly we're circling back again, asking about how the impacts of climate change, the availability and access will again act through these pre-existing tensions. So in short, we're not necessarily looking at a model where climate change will lead to more conflicts, but it will certainly add fuel, it will prolong existing conflicts, and generally make it harder to exit those conflicts as the conflict erodes development, erodes livelihoods, erodes institutional capacity, which then makes it harder to cope with the climate change effects, effectively putting us into a climate conflict trap. Uh, but if this is the state of the science, there's an awful lot that we do not know. Um, and here is where I share Andy's enthusiasm about data and new technologies. One of the reasons why, I mean, we can postulate many things. One of the reasons why we may be saying, well, we're not seeing a lot of effects right now is that we're focusing on the types of conflict that we know best. Uh, these would be things like large scale civil wars we may find that climate change, and there's some increasing literature on this, is leading to other forms of social instability. Um, violence towards women, violence towards, less, um, uh, towards more vulnerable groups, less, exclusionary, less inclusionary institutions, less robust livelihood strategies, and more displacement. 
It may also be that the resolution or types of climate indicators that we've been using are just simply too crude. And with the hope that, you know, when I sort of heard someone saying it's about surveys, it's about attitudinal data, getting more near-term access to this, more spatial data could really for, help us forward new theories and new hypotheses. Um, it is also, and this is a real concern in the community, that what will happen as these changes start to pile up? It might be fine to say I can't see a trace right now, but under climate change, we are expecting many new changes, things which are sort of outside of my data set to be occurring. Here, getting access to data and the use of more innovative statistical techniques could speed up our learning process. We might be able to find earlier traces. We may also be able to test how predictive our models are faster so that we can also provide this information on a more timely scale. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And your uh, answer and suggestion that we take a more expansive uh, view and understanding of conflict leads actually very nicely to my next question to uh, Enrica. WFP has long been a leader in using new technologies in humanitarian emergencies. And as you know, uh, and as uh, folks who follow the UN closely know very well, in recent years, there has been this shift, almost an attitudinal shift and a policy shift uh, in the UN uh, around the adoption of what's known as the humanitarian development peace nexus, in which there is a renewed emphasis on using uh, humanitarian aid and development assistance to address root causes of conflict and vulnerability. Uh, so to what extent has the WFP integrated data and technologies for promoting a more holistic programming uh, around that humanitarian development peace nexus? Great. Um so let me again share some of the, the enthusiasm that the, the previous speakers had. Um, I'm, I'm a former CGIR staff for over 14 years. I was uh, looking at the development uh, part uh, of, of the discussion we're having today and now shifted to the World Food Programme, which is the largest humanitarian organizations in the world, where we serve um, every year over um, 100 million people in, in over 80 countries. And as a humanitarian organization, as, as you were saying, we are acutely aware of how the patterns of risks uh, are changing in many countries. We see how climate-related uh, problems really exacerbate social tensions. And on the other hand, how uh, conflict undermines people's resilience and, and food security. Uh, some of our most complex and expensive programs are in places where people are caught uh, between climate-related problems and violent conflict. Just in a sample of 10 countries that are affected by conflict between uh, Afghanistan, Burundi, the Central African Republic, all the way to South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Yemen, we have counted uh, over 54 million people who suffer from hunger and are also affected by climate extremes. And these are people who barely have a chance of escaping the, the cycle of hunger. So we have a double threat of climate change and conflict that forces organizations like the Wolf Food Program to look at humanitarian programs completely different, where we need to balance uh, programs to save lives, uh, which is becoming even more difficult as the number of hungry people is increasing and the contexts are becoming more and crisis more protracted, with programs that change lives and strengthen the resilience of those who are in harm's way. So as you, as you rightfully pointed out, we've been embracing technology and the use of data 
uh, in a way that, uh, in an unprecedented way, looks at, uh, at the efficiency of making more evidence-based decisions for our own organizations, but also looking at how we can uh, move from being more uh, from being reactive to situations to anticipating situations and preventing uh, at times the disaster consequences by having early warnings. But World Food Program, despite having a very pervasive and capillary presence in many of these countries, cannot and does not work in isolations. This is why uh, discussions like this, connecting with uh, academia, with research organizations is very important. That's why we're closely linked to the Secretary General's new roadmap for digital cooperations and the UN data strategy so that we can together collect, analyze, apply, make available, accessible, and actionable all the data sets on behalf of those who are uh, most affected by this uh, situation. Uh, thank you. And, and actually, in, in the second part of this conversation, uh, we'll talk a little more granularly about what kind of data you'd be looking for uh, as part of, of say, this uh, platform on digital cooperation and the kinds of data you'll be interested in, in using and analyzing to help uh, in service of your mission at WFP. Uh, but for now, let me turn to uh, Martin. Uh, can you briefly explain what is the Climate Center at the Red Cross Red Crescent Movement? And can you explain to what extent you have seen climate being integrated into decision making, uh, specifically around peace building issues that you work with? Thanks. And uh, yeah, it's great to come after these uh, these amazing speakers. And, and I could echo so much as, of, of what has already been said. But, but let me tell you a little bit about ourselves first, as you asked. Um, so I lead a center of about 40 people based around the world. We were virtual already before COVID. So that was an, an, easy, uh, an easy transition for us. Um, but supporting this global Red Cross Red Crescent movement. Um, the largest humanitarian network. Uh, WFP is bigger in money, we're bigger in, in people on the ground, uh, one might argue. Especially all these volunteers uh, in these small villages, sometimes actually also doing the food distribution. So we work very, very closely together with partners like WFP and, and, and other agencies. It also includes the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, that, uh, that organizes our support in, uh, in areas of conflict, in all the major conflicts in the world. Um, and we face the same problems as WFP. So we see that our humanitarian uh, workload has increased over the years, including due to this, this rising pressure uh, on our work due to the changing climate. Uh, we're seeing that conflicts are protracted. So it's not an in or out during a battle to provide humanitarian assistance for the short term. We're with these communities for the long term. We're facing challenges adjusting our own operations to these realities including um, working in, in, in much more partnership-oriented modes than might traditionally have been the case in, in humanitarian work. Um, but we're also facing challenges supporting the communities that, in the end, also our volunteers are part of. And again, it's the, the people in the most vulnerable circumstances already that are being hit hardest. And in that sense, I think I would also be quite humble in a way in terms of what our agenda can bring. Uh, I would agree with, with Andy that there are huge opportunities and, and we should really put our best brains to it to, to, to maximize them. But at the same time, the gap in terms of putting those opportunities to use for those people that are so badly affected is also huge. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. I mean, some of the areas worst affected by climate change are the areas where we have the poorest data on what has happened to the climate. 
And uh, climate is, there's not going to be a straight link from climate to conflict that allows us to use the often non-existent climate data in those places to prevent the next conflict. So what we're often dealing with, I think this has also been an, an important discussion in the UN Security Council, for instance, people were wondering, can we predict the next conflict based on our knowledge on climate change? I think that's the wrong question to ask. What we're facing in, in practice is a situation where people in conflict settings are hit worst by climate shocks because they are already so vulnerable due to that conflict. And then, as pointed out by previous speakers, there may be that, that cyclical dimension even. But that, that basic understanding of risk, defined primarily by exposure and vulnerability of those people, is well understood. And then the question is, how do we reform? How do we build better partnerships? How do we bring in the data that we do have, especially on that vulnerability, to those places? And then indeed, like pointed out already, I mean, there is so much that we need to do better in these places, especially in terms of anticipating. Despite years of knowledge, the humanitarian world has for too long still been responding after the fact. We are getting better. For the first time, WFP is, is, has been working in close partnership with us as well on something called forecast-based financing, where we now have funding available to act before a shock occurs. We know from research that that is more effective dollar for dollar in terms of humanitarian effectiveness. It's also more dignified in terms of impacts on people. But it takes effort to set those systems up because you need to think in advance. And it's also not something a researcher can do from the outside. So that is maybe my, my plea also in all the technology innovations that we, that we have at our disposal in this, this day and age, that we make the connection to the people that need to actually take these actions on the ground. Because in our experience, it's very often that last mile from the knowledge to the local action that is missing. And I think a lot of the enthusiasm uh, around this conversation is probably because we are bringing humanitarians like yourself and like Enrica together with data scientists and, and policy experts uh, in order to do exactly uh, what you just uh, described and suggested that we do. And I know many people in the audience also are data scientists and policy experts as well. And I'm sure that they can be summoned to, to support this effort and this conversation is all is, is in uh, hopes to entice them to do so. Um, so the first set of questions that I asked each of you all was intended to explain what the current state of play is in terms of the kinds of data and technologies and policymaking that exist today in the service of promoting a climate security agenda. In the remaining time that we have, I wanna ask some forward-looking questions. What more can we be doing? And what would a forward-looking research and policy agenda look like? Uh, so, Enrica, I know I teased this question to you earlier, uh, but I wanted to start with you and ask what kind of research agenda into climate security would most benefit WFP in the coming years? And do you have, do we have, does it exist the necessary political and scientific building blocks to support that kind of research agenda? I think the, the, the political will is growing. Um, technology is is uh, is growingly available. Um, I think that the awareness of what um, a digital uh, cooperation uh, can yield in terms of uh, bridging that uh, uh, food peace uh, uh, nexus uh, is uh, is is again also being becoming more and more uh, understood. Um, so I'm 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 hopeful. I'm optimistic about the the uh, uh, bringing together the humanitarian on the ground um, crisis response uh, capacity with the uh, the science and the uh, ability to to predict 
that uh, that um, uh, that maybe dialogues like this can can bring together. So, what is the type of data on the type of technology that we could uh, that we could bring to to the fore and uh, uh, to the to the service of the uh, of the affected communities? I think a, a lot of uh, the vulnerability assessment that was uh, spoken of before, a lot of uh, data around, um, you know, satellite imagery, but also ourselves, we deploy a lot of drones to collect uh, almost uh, near uh, real-time data about the situation on the ground. So more and more data is being generated. And as uh, Andy says, you know, now that we have all these different data streams, it is um, we have a huge responsibility of this uh, creating this platform for deep integrations where not only humanitarians but development communities as well can can uh, work together to find uh, uh, almost like a, um, uh, a, a new uh, new way of uh, new way of operating um, I think it's uh, uh, all of this needs to be trust on uh, on a spirit of collaboration and on a spirit of uh, of trust. Uh, of trust with each other, um, but also on, on, uh, on uh, um, because again, as I said, you know, uh, the technology and the, and the data is there. And uh, we, can, can I, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah. can I just ask you to respond to something that Martin said along those lines? I mean, he said that, um, or he suggested that in the places where data around climate security is needed the most is often where the data is the poorest. Um, do, is that something you agree with? Is, uh -huh. is there a place you could recommend that researchers probe more carefully? You see, at times, so there is a uh, there is an excess amount of data for certain parts of the world, and there is no um, data, especially um, data from the we collect from the ground. Mm -hmm. In uh, uh, in WFP, we use a lot of uh, uh, satellite imagery for uh, vulnerability assessment, for prediction. Um, but what is missing sometimes is that uh, quick turnaround cycle of actually knowing. What the situation on the ground is. So we're actually deploying um, an, uh, an, a number of uh, new innovative technology um, to build the community uh, uh, awareness and, and capabilities of providing information uh, where uh, where maybe we're not present. So that kind of crowdsourcing of, uh, of information that can come directly from the ground. So okay. that's also both as humanitarians who are so um, uh, so present on the ground uh, can can provide. Thank you, and that actually leads nicely to my question for Andy. Um, what can be done to better integrate that that kind of big data into climate security analysis, and how can it be incorporated in current peace building activities along the lines of what uh, Enrica and Martin described? Yeah, so let me let me frame it around three three kind of areas of work. You know, I mean, the, the, it's a bit of a cliche, right? But the best way to peace build is to prevent the conflict in the first place, right? So, on the prevention side of things, I think there's that's where we see there's there's, there's already quite a lot of work on this, and I think a lot of opportunity. You know, first of all, um, we work with a food security lens, and um, so many climate induced kind of famines and and sources of conflict that that uh, um, come from kind of food prices, food availability, hunger-related uh, issues. So many of those things can can be prevented much more effectively. Um, you know, we can. Uh, Enrique's already mentioned satellites. Um, we in agriculture, we're on the cusp now of a real revolution in in how satellites can be informing what's going on in fields. We normally find out what's happening in terms of production. Um, after the event, you know, six months later, we get the statistics of what actually happened. But r right now, there are 
big, big, big moves towards having much more real-time vision of what's happening in, in terms of food security. I think that's a game changer for prevention. But then the other thing is climate itself is predictable. And so um, not, not to 100%, nothing is fully pre predictable in the climate system, but we do have ways of generating seasonal forecasts and things like that that give us an idea that problems might be around the corner. So we need to get, we need to be using digital means of both doing those forecasts, but also getting them into people's uh, um, uh, hands and minds, right, um, for action. And so um, that's why we, what we call climate information services, providing these through ICTs, cell phones, radio, uh, all means possible, but providing that kind of information to people on the ground that problems might be coming. And so being better prepared is a big, big, big issue. Um, during during a kind of crisis in the response side of things, I think there's a whole no number of entry points. Um, you know, I think one thing we've done, and this is a kind of experience from, from COVID right now, which has been a kind of dress rehearsal for so many of these things. Um, uh, we've been looking at tri tracking prices. Prices are critical um, and availability of food in these crises. And so, um, but so many of the people most vulnerable are engaged in highly informal markets uh, and we have no no capture there's no points of le leverage points to capture information in that um, and so um, that's where things like ICT based uh, we've been doing um, in, uh, interactive voice response calls with uh, people in for example the slums of Nairobi to understand how is their access to, to, to food changing right now um, that's also been pretty uh, uh, transformational with that information you can tailor response much better um, 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 from the humanitarian aid side of things. And much um, faster, and then, not only better, and, but faster. And yeah, and getting to the after bit, I mean, on the recovery side, um, you know, I think that's where the dichotomy between humanitarian aid and development needs to be broken down. Um, you know, that that really uh, is, is, is kind of, we have so many opportunities in the recovery phase, just as we do right now with COVID, to tackle some of these underpinning vulnerabilities um, that are causing a conflict in the first place. And so, you know, there I think it's about joining those two. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be around um, in the climate side of things, you know, looking at water security and, and using all sorts of amazing digital solutions as well on water about micro, small scale irrigation mm -hmm. systems and solar off grid solutions to provide water in areas with serious scarcity. Um, so so th thank you for that. And, and again, thank you for highlighting that dichotomy that sometimes exists that the UN is trying to break down between development issues and humanitarianism, uh, that peace, uh, develop, that uh, humanitarian and peace and development nexus that we referenced earlier. Um, uh, Elizabeth, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation to again get your perspective as an academic about the, some of the best practices that you are seeing right now in terms of approaches for studying the impact of climate on conflict and what can be done to scale up uh, some of those best practices and invest more in that kind of research. Right, um, and you know, it, as an academic, right, listening to, to practitioners on the ground sort of describe their challenges and also what they have available is, um, again, this is a real opportunity. Um, the, as far as what Martin said, I wanna come back to that. One of the biggest problems that I see in my community, and we're, we're aware of this, is that we have a real streetlight effect, right? We study the things that we have data to study. We seem to have uh, lost Elizabeth's connection, um, but maybe uh, I can 
use this opportunity to have Martin predict uh, a little bit of what Elizabeth was saying about that street light effect. Um, is that something you experience as well? Are, are you, what research do you wish you had your hands on right now that would help you to uh, better pursue your peace building activities? Yeah, well, uh, I am a part-time researcher myself at ITC at University of Twente. So um, to some extent, I, I face this question, right? What, what, what projects do I write? What sort of academic collaborations do I build? Uh, what are my PhD students working on? Um, to give you one example, um, uh, someone actually from my Red Cross Red Crescent team, so someone who is, has had some research training but has been in the field, is now doing a, a mid-career PhD um, looking at uh, early warning and early action in conflict-affected areas. So the question of what information actually um, is used, by whom, uh, for what decisions at the moment, how could that be improved? Um, looking at uh, the, the whole range of issues that has that has passed right what sort of information is really driving this is it the climate signal and at, if so at what time scales is relevant information available is that the long-term climate trend is it the seasonal is it the short-term weather forecast what are the things we can we can still do what drives vulnerability to those hazards um, and of course that is super dynamic as well right people are moving around for instance in situations of conflict um, it's very disaggregated even within communities. Gender is, is for instance, a, a, a very important factor there. And then the question is, how do we channel support? Uh, and again, what is the role of humanitarians? What is the role of those communities and, and the information we can provide to them? And what is the, 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 the implication of the diagnosis of risk and what cannot be done in the short term for how we build longer term resilience? And that's not just we, in terms of our humanitarian support, but also the, the handover to a, a wide range of other actors. Um, I want to bring up one additional dimension there, which is the ethics. And this is especially important in real conflict areas. Um, there is also a risk to information. Information can be abused. Uh, some people can be very scared to share information with us. And uh, I think we also have a, a real obligation to think about not just information security, but, but really also the ethics of who owns that information, what is it used for, who does it benefit. Um, so with all our excitement of technology again i think we we have some some really harsh dilemmas to confront and um my personal opinion is that researchers especially working in these areas always need to bring all these things together uh, there cannot be a siloed approach to the knowledge questions that we're facing in these these harsh contexts uh, and that's again why my center as a, a bridge between science policy and practice is such a fruitful uh, area of collaboration where we're working with academics from from all corners, uh, including in CJIR, to uh, to tackle these sorts of questions. Thank you, and I want to see if we can bring Elizabeth back in, if possible. Um, I'll give a moment to see if she is back on the line. Apparently not. So let me uh, move on to just a very quick lightning round question in the last two minutes we have before we open it up to audience Q&A. And again, if you're watching this live, please do submit a question. And uh, our moder our co-moderator, Grazia, will pose your question to the panelists. So uh, just a very brief answer to the remaining three of you on the line. Uh, Andy, first to you. What would be the one innovation in data or technology that you would like to see in your organization to strengthen your efforts for climate and social political security? 
So one key innovation you're looking for. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's no silver bullet in this. Uh, for me, it's, it's, you, it's a whole toolkit of stuff. If there's one thing though that's really critical, it's just having access to the data and having access to the tools at your fingertips. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just breaking down the barriers to use for this, um, making you. it easy. That, that's for me the thing. Uh, and thank you. And, and Enrica, on to you. What would be the one innovation in data or technology that you would find most useful and most helpful in your organization? You know, I, I would echo what Andy said. Not only there is no one no one silver bullet, but we actually have a lot of silver bullet, uh, a lot of uh, opportunity technologies and data sets already available. The real challenge I see, uh, there are two. One is uh, echoing what Martin, uh, what Martin said is the ethics, the transparency, the security, the overall risk management, especially in conflict areas where we mostly work, where at times we hold the, the the identities of many of the beneficiaries that we serve, you know, the most uh, vulnerable uh, people in, on, on earth and uh, that responsibility, the trust is, uh, is incredible value. But also, do we actually make the right, you know, do we make the decisions on the, ba on the basis of the data that we have? And I see that uh, that change management process, although, you know, again, the data is available, is available, is accessible, um, is analyzable, but it's not always used to make that uh, those informed decisions. That, Thank that you. We Thank you. Thank you. And, and finally, Martin, to you, uh, you know, is there a single innovation that you would find most useful right now? I would agree with the previous speakers, I'm afraid. Mm. There is not one silver bullet. Um, I, if, if I were to, I, I don't also think I would invest my money in any one technology. I think all of, all of what we've been discussed is super exciting, but all of it is also at risk of not being used. So I would put a lot of emphasis on that, that link to the decision maker. Um, and I think we need to realize that that may still go in two directions. The one is uh, whether we actually bring that information also to people on the ground that need to make difficult day-to-day -day decisions, say the farmer in Somalia. On the other hand, we have the policymakers. And in that sense, for instance, COVID right now is interesting, right? It confronts us like never before with the vulnerability of our economies and our livelihoods to enormous shocks. And in, in that sense, it is uh, a general rehearsal for what is gonna come our way more with the climate crisis. Thank so you. are we actually drawing lessons from that? And are decision makers taking the analysis that is actually not even requiring rocket science, it's for everyone to see right now, to, to act differently in how we rebuild. Are we rebuilding greener? Are we rebuilding resilient? So it's also upon all of us to not only ask these hard questions, do the right analysis, but also communicate that very effectively. And that I think also to some extent requires asking these questions jointly with decision makers, be they the Somalian farmers or be they the high level policymakers, so that they'll be waiting for our answers when we provide them. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, so now I'm gonna turn this over to Grazia who will uh, take questions from the audience and pose those questions uh, to you. Uh, so Grazia, over to you. Thanks, Mark, and thank you very much to all of our speakers. It's been a very interesting discussion so far. But now we can hear it from the audience. Uh, we've had many questions and uh, we've selected a few for each one of you. And then if you have time, then one for all of you. Um, so we start with uh, Andy and uh, Martin. Uh, you've been working a lot, both working a lot on, on climate, climate science. Uh, but uh, mm, the audience would like to know what are the most common mistakes 
in using technologies for explaining complex dynamics, such as the one of climate change and climate variability. And what can we learn from these to inform decision-making regarding climate security? Great. I mean, I mean uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in straight away. You know, communicating climate change is a nightmare. Um, it's, um, it's a very hard concept to get across, but also when you're, when you're giving precise, kind of trying to give precise, but, but uncertain information to uh, everyone from policymakers through to general public, through to farmers and so on. It's very, very hard, and uh, it's very hard to frame it to communicate it in a way that does that, that is true to the information, but also um, uh, understandable and um, portrays it in a way that is then actionable by those people. Um, so it's it's very difficult, and I, I I do think we vastly underestimate the importance of the research and the science around the ways of communicating information, you know? So things like seasonal forecasts that, that go out, they're probabilistic. It means we don't know if it's gonna be a dry year or a dry season, but we have a certain probability that it might be. And uh, you, that, that very concept of prob probab probabilities is a tough one to communicate. It's a tough one to deal with people who are not who are not accustomed to that kind of information. So, so it's a delicate thing that needs a lot of investment. It's not just about having the, the forecast or whatever. It's thinking very, very well about how you communicate it, the means you use to communicate it, the words you use, um, who you communicate to, et cetera. So it is that two-way data capture and delivery that you talked about before, which is really, really important. And that takes me to uh, Martin then. How do we, um, I mean, in answering the question that I asked before, uh, there is another question specifically for you that is, uh, how do we connect better with those people that are directly affected by climate? How do we do this delivery of the information that science produces? So let me first echo the challenge that Andy described. Um, and I think an important element there is, is the word uncertainty that you that you emphasized, Andy. Um, th the trickiest thing is there are some things we're very sure about, but within what we can then tell people what that means for them, there's a lot that we're not sure about. Um, and it's very, and particularly in places where it's also political, it gets even more tricky because then it's seen as taking sides to even, even say something about it. So that makes, makes it even more loaded. Uh, but even in places where that's not the case, uh, uh, that uncertainty is a real challenge. One thing that is really changing and, and is also an answer to that second question is that I think it's becoming more and more evident that we are already in a changed world. Uh, that has advantages. It also bears additional risks because we can start calling everything climate change and we can start blaming everything on climate change. And climate change is certainly also in context of conflict, only one of many factors. But it is, it is becoming an increasingly visible risk driver. Um, one of the things that has been a bit of a game changer in our work in Red Cross Red Crescent is, is something called attribution of extreme events. So whereas 20 years ago, people would say about an individual event that occurred, um, well, you know, that is just chance. You know, um, if you want to say anything about that individual event, collect 30 years of data on individual events, and then we'll say something about whether the climate has changed. By now, we're asking the question differently in the same way as a seasonal forecast is probabilistic, we can ask the, the question about the statistics of an individual event. And we can look at our models in different ways to actually answer that question. How has the probability of this specific event changed? That allows you to then have a conversation with people that have just experienced that event to say, 
this heat wave in Europe, for instance, last year, and we're experiencing this in the richest of all countries. Huh? So this, it's not exclusive to, to the, the most fragile places. I mean, hundreds of people died in the Netherlands. If those had been deaths to a flood, people would be up in arms. But it, it's a heat wave. It's the most vulnerable people. It's not so vis visible. So how do you deal with that? If you tell people that heat wave is now more than 10 times likely 10 times more likely than due to climate change you can give those numbers and you can then talk about some of those impacts and especially about what people themselves can do on the greenhouse gas side in rich countries that is also changing your behavior in terms of emissions but it's also very practically making sure if you've got an elderly neighbor living on their own it's again trends coming together aging populations make sure they drink six glasses of water a day and in the same way you could have a discussion with a with a farmer in somalia now, in those contexts, sadly, because of what we were discussing before, and, and uh, I think before you dropped off, uh, Elizabeth, this was what, what you were starting to hint at. In Somalia, we may not be able to give as much detail, say, a changing probability for uh, a drought or even for an amount of flooding, which might happen in, this, in the same place. But we can talk in reasonable ways about how the climate is becoming more volatile and how this fits patterns and how people may need to, to cope with that deep uncertainty. And people often have many local solutions. Can, can apply. A second question I think we as scientists yeah. then need to confront and, and in, a, in a dialogue with communities also explore is where there are limits to adaptation. In some ways, and I think this is also a really challenging thing to confront for humanitarians, we may be helping people cope with circumstances time and time again, whereas actually their whole livelihood system may be moving closer and closer to an edge where it's just no longer sustainable. Martin, I, I see uh, Elizabeth nodding her head vigorously. Uh, yeah. Maybe I could just sort of um, let her jump back in. Yeah, and, and thank you. I, I was um, uh, sort of going to jump back in kind of a bit at the tail end of, of where I left off. Apologies. Um, but what I heard also from Martin was sort of, you know, this idea of engaging with decision makers. And I think this is something that the academic community is also starting to embrace a little bit more than we perhaps traditionally are seen as wanting uh, to embrace. Uh, and here's about how we connect and couple our, our research at faster scales, right? We're changing, we're seeing these changes, but our data sets are 30 years long. And that was, you know, the, the amount of time it took to collect that, we may, we may not want to be back in that situation. We may want faster access, it to be better connected to the questions that are being asked and to get us out of sort of the streetlight effect that we've been in, where we study the things that we know best. Uh, here, I would point to, um, uh, I think I, I'm going to try to restrict it to four things. Uh, academic lists can get long. The first is um, better indicators of early conflict, ideas, attitudinal changes. Um, we tend to study only the worst events, but that may be that we're just not capturing the earlier signs of social instability that we want to. And here, I, I think, Martin, your insight about being able to ask people who are experiencing things that we specifically know are from climate change early and getting in there and being able to test our models on that would be very innovative um, and a real step forward. I think also, though, it's not just about testing how climate change is going to influence conflict. It's also about being more attuned to how the, act, the activities, the actual actions taken by the agencies are affecting our propensity for conflict. And here again, I think the research community has a real role to play. Uh, this is you know, exactly what we're sort of trained to do. 
Um, and if we're able to go in and do more early evaluation, we may also be looking at how our responses are more responsive in conflict, but also in conflict prevention. The final thing that I think the research community has really come around to is that we're not just talking about conflict here. Um, we're also talking about cooperation. Um, some of these same stressors um, and these same programs that we're putting in, it should not just be seen as avoiding a conflict. It should be about better understanding how we promote and when we observe cooperative behavior and really expanding our, our, our spectrum. Uh, so those are, you know, we sort of go back to best practices. I think these are some of the angles that we can really move forward on. Uh, and again, I think that call that Martin had about being more responsive to decision makers. I think here again, the academic community should be a call to ourselves on how we engage with you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. This um, really uh, leads me to the, back to the start of uh, what uh, Andy Jarrow was saying, that the science without data is actually uh, just a story. And as uh, Elizabeth and Martin, uh, you have clearly said, uh, there are some places we don't have to follow the, uh, the traffic light uh, bias, whereby we only study what we have, we do the research, what we have the data. So this is a question uh, for, for, for Erika. Uh, what can we do? The AWSP works in many emergency situations. Research takes time. Um, uh, emergencies don't have time. Emergency situations, we don't have time for doing a lot of research. So when, what can we do uh, as humanitarian development organization, but also research organization to give voice to these people that are uh, usually left behind that we don't know enough about? Uh, I Again, a lot of it comes from um, agreements or discussions like this, not in the middle of a crisis, right? I mean, preparedness is the is the secret source of a uh, of a successful response to an emergency, but also in building resilience of of communities. And I think in knowing where the most fragile environments are going to be, and working together with the uh, people on the ground, like us, who with programs like Food for Assets, for example, where we build. Um, uh, through the through the local communities, uh, ensuring food security for them during the period of working, you know, to help them um, build, you know, dams or build uh, uh, water reservoirs. So enhancing the local infrastructure to make to make them more resilient to sh to uh, to the aftermath of a of a shock of a climate shock is where I think some of this uh, cooperation can happen. I think cooperation is also at the digital level, as I said. You know, I think that COVID is indeed the first uh, real big data crisis that is not only felt in developing countries in the most fragile, but also in in uh, in in the north, where where really we see that when uh, where we are able to put all the information together across borders, across boundaries, we're able to make a better decision faster. So I think that this is where I I I'm I'm not really a Agreeing on the fact that we have a dichotomy between developments and uh, and humanitarians, I think it's just uh, two strands of uh, uh, two sides of the same coin, which need to uh, come closer together. And again, both on the ground actions, this uh, decision support tools, uh, but also, uh, you know, again, I, I'm I'm a strong believer, like Andy is, that uh, the digital. Uh, era is providing us an opportunity to turbocharge some of this change. So we're taking the opportunity 
of, uh, uh, of, of establishing a better, more virtuous relationship between on-the-ground action and responding to, uh, to emergencies, to get a, getting better prepared on the basis of, uh, uh, of data and information and research that comes out of the, uh, of the academic community. Thank you. And Gratia, we have just a minute left, if that, for uh, this final round. That's fine. So this is a final round. Quick questions. A uh, quick question for all of you guys. Um, uh, we've discussed the length of the power of data technologies, but uh, here we have a humanitarian development organization and research institute. So in your mind, and in few words, what are the concrete possibilities of these uh, uh, innovative collaboration, as you said? What is the role of the different pieces, humanitarian organizations, uh, research institutes, by even the private sectors? Where do we start? Uh, what would be our geographic focus if we were to wake up tomorrow and say, like, okay, let's do it together. Let's do it. So where, what should we do? Where do we start? And, and, and keep your answers to uh, 15 seconds, if possible. Yes. Uh, let's start with uh, Martin. Uh, Martin, you're muted. Sorry, I would not pick one place. I think we, we need to get the best people to collaborate for each individual context. And in those places, the one thing I want to say is we need to collaborate with the people most affected. The last mile needs to be the first mile. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, let's go to Elizabeth. Right. Um, I'm going to agree with Martin. I think that um, that ideas about uh, co-production of our results, both uh, sort of at all scales, is really where the re where researchers should be going. I think it's a challenging place for us, but I think it's how we're going to be most responsive to, uh, to the climate crisis. Thank you. Uh, maybe to uh, Enrica. Yeah, well, again, as I said, my colleague said, is partnerships. And I think at this forum is one of the examples of where partnerships is is absolutely the new leadership. We're partnership with technology industry, with academia, with research, with governments, uh, with the global humanitarian development communities, but also with the people who are affected, who at times know best the, the way to become you know, more resilient. Okay. Andy, send us off, please. Oh my God, yeah, I mean, but that's it, it's cooperation. You know, I'm a global optimist. Uh, you know, I think um, we're getting better and better at cooperation. Things like digital tools are making it much more effective as well. And it is about bringing in public, civil, society, uh, private sector, all around the table to, to, to solve these kinds of issues. Fantastic, thank you very much, all of you. Uh, and back to you, Mark. Uh, well, thank you all. Thank you so much to uh, the panelists. Thank you for your time. Thank you to those in the audience. And you know, we, I think if there's a single message to come out of this, it is that these kinds of conversations and cross-disciplinary collaborations are just so necessary right now. And I'm glad to that this conversation was at least one platform to have that kind of uh, collaboration and cross-disciplinary approach to these complex issues. Uh, so this concludes uh, today's webinar, uh, which again was recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. To access that podcast episode and others, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. Now, to uh, send you off, I am going to uh, pass over to a video uh, that will preview the next webinar in this climate security series. And that webinar is taking place on July 2nd at 4 p.m. CEST. Thank you. Enjoy the video and we'll see you next time. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to CGIAR and to all the panelists. And I look forward to seeing you at the next one of these live tapings, July 2nd. And again, you can register for that event by just clicking on the link in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.